Welcome back to the final spring session of Parkside Green Study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I want to start out by publicly thanking Pastor Adam for recording every single one of these teachings. A few times he drove to the church building just to set up and then produce these recordings. So to me, Adam has been a really cool model of servant leadership. Also want to thank your small group leaders who have done such a tremendous job and each of you for the role that you have played in the study or all the ways that you've contributed to your small groups. Uh, and if you haven't had the chance yet, uh, please take just three minutes to complete the survey that's attached to this week's teaching and give us your feedback. We highly value your honest input on that survey. So, we started way back in the dead of winter on January 12th, and we are finishing in what I hope is truly springtime here at the end of April. Along the way, we've learned so much from what Luke has in common with the other Gospels, and also what is unique to Luke. Only Luke's Gospel tells us about the angel's promises to Elizabeth and Zechariah about their son John. Only Luke tells us about Mary's visit to her relative uh, Elizabeth, including Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. Only Luke tells us of Zechariah's tongue being loose to praise God, and that's just all in the first chapter. As we continued on, we saw that only Luke reports Caesar's decree that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, just as it had been prophesied. Only Luke reports the angels appearing to the shepherds, who then go and find Jesus born in a manger. Only Luke reports how Joseph and Mary presented Jesus at the temple, with Simeon and Anna having the chance to thank God for this baby Messiah. Only Luke reports how 12-year-old Jesus amazed the teachers at the temple, his father's house. And only Luke reports Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. And that's just in chapters 2 and 3. Luke alone, we see, gives details about how Jesus was rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, chapter 4. How Simon had that huge, miraculous catch of fish that just about swamped the boats uh, before he followed Jesus in chapter 5. How Jesus prayed all night before choosing his 12 disciples in chapter 6, and how Jesus raised the, the son of the widow of Nain there in chapter 7. Doesn't it make you grateful for each gospel as we consider everything that we would not know about Jesus without having all four of them? And again, it's true of this week's passage, all of which is unique to Luke. You'll remember we left off last week with the Pharisees objecting to the way that Jesus came eating and drinking and was truly a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And that leads right into this week's passage where Jesus eats and drinks at the home of a Pharisee. There are many lessons to learn here about true forgiveness, true forgiveness, which we'll organize under four headings. First, we'll see a sinner's shocking love, verses 36 to 38. Second, story time for Simon, verses 39 to 43. Thirdly, signs of salvation, chapter 44 to 50. And then lastly, sacrificial lady supporters in the first three verses of chapter 8. 
So we begin with a sinner's shocking love. Chapter 7, verses 37, 36 to 38. It begins with a Pharisee asking Jesus to come and eat with him in his home. Now, we've already seen Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners when Matthew threw that great feast in his home. And in that occasion, a sinner, Matthew was the host, and the Pharisees were sort of intruders. But here we see that Jesus is also willing to eat with Pharisees, to take his place at their table as well. After all, Pharisees need Jesus just like tax collectors do. And the unexpected twist here this week is that with a Pharisee as the host, an unnamed sinner is sort of the intruder. Guess who's coming to dinner? It's a woman who has a reputation of being a sinner. And she is so drawn to Jesus that she is willing to crash this party at the home of a judgmental Pharisee where she was sure to be looked down on. But this sinful woman is undeterred. She, she comes bearing an alabaster flask of ointment, uh, probably a soft stone container of perfume. The guests are all reclining with their heads near the food table and their feet circling out kind of like spokes toward the outer rim of a circle or a wheel. And with all these male religious leaders reclining toward the center, the female sinner stands on the outer edge behind Jesus. And from that spot, she shows shocking love by wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, kissing Jesus' feet, and anointing Jesus' feet with the ointment that she brought. Remember, attending to the feet was a menial servant's task. But this woman touched Jesus' feet in four ways, wetting them with her tears, wiping with her hair, kissing with her lips, and anointing with her ointment, her oil. Now the Pharisee who was hosting the dinner said to himself, in an apparently unspoken internal dialogue, that if Jesus were really a prophet, if he was actually a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. It's scandalous. But then Jesus shows that he is a prophet by reading Simon's mind and answering his unspoken thoughts. Simon, he addresses him by name, I have something to say to you. You can imagine just all the other guests are listening in at this point, all ears. Say it, teacher. Speak on. It's story time for Simon, and the story is going to have some very direct points that will expose Simon in some uncomfortable ways. The story is this. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, that's 20 months of wages. The second owed him 50 denarii, two months of wages, one-tenth of the first person's debt. But when neither debtor could pay, the moneylender completely canceled the debts of both. So Jesus asks, which of these forgiven debtors will love the merciful lender more? Jesus has very skillfully used this story to disarm Simon, who answers correctly that it's the one for whom the lender canceled the larger debt, ten times the size of the second one. 
Having drawn Simon into the story, Jesus then draws out the point of the story, which is actually about signs of salvation. You see, when Simon's lack of hospitality is stacked up against this sinful woman's actions, he comes out on the short end every time. When Jesus entered Simon's house, he gave Jesus no water for his feet. But the sinful woman has wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, kind of like a makeshift towel. Simon did not give Jesus a kiss of welcome or greeting, but the sinful woman has not ceased to kiss Jesus' feet. Simon did not anoint Jesus' head with oil, but the sinful woman anointed Jesus' feet with ointment. Unlike Simon, the inhospitable host, this woman has shown shocking love to Jesus. The sinner who crashed the party has been a better host than Simon the Pharisee. And then the unforgettable ending of the story. The woman's sins, which are many, no glossing over them, the woman's sins, which are many, are forgiven. Yeah, she's a sinner, a big 500 denarii debtor, but she is a forgiven sinner. And that's why she loves Jesus so much. Her loving actions didn't earn her salvation, but her loving actions were signs of her salvation. You remember from verse 37, she already knew about Jesus before this gathering. In fact, that's what prompted her to come to the gathering. And in Jesus' story, first the debt is forgiven, and then the response of love follows. We love God because he first loved us. So, having been forgiven much, probably as one who trusted in Jesus, the woman loved much. It's evident that her many sins are forgiven because she loved so much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Simon the Pharisee needs to examine himself and, and the status of his own forgiveness since he has loved Jesus so little. Ouch! In front of all his dinner guests, in his own home, this revered Pharisee. Ouch! And with the sting in the air still hanging there, Jesus then tells the woman that her sins are forgiven. Maybe like a word of reassurance that your sins have indeed been forgiven. Though she seemed like an unlikely prospect, the king has received her into God's kingdom. And this prompts the other dinner guest to question, who is this Jesus who even forgives sins, right? Without even requiring the normal sin offering at the temple in Jerusalem. Kind of like a replay of what happened when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic. You remember from chapter 5, and, and the Pharisees on that occasion saw Jesus as a blasphemer because God alone can forgive sins. But Jesus is God, and he concludes this episode by telling the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, her loving actions with Jesus' feet didn't cause her salvation, but her actions reflected her salvation. It's faith in Jesus that saves a person and enables them to go in peace. 
Lastly, we will see a brief description of Jesus' sacrificial lady supporters as our final point. After the incident in Simon's home, Jesus went on to other cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of God's kingdom to others. Of course, the twelve apostles were with Jesus as he traveled and ministered and preached. But besides these dozen men, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities were also with Jesus. Three of these women are named here. First, there is Mary Magdalene, probably from the town of Magdala. And there's a lot of legend that grew up about Mary Magdalene as the centuries went on. In fact, many writers said that she had been a prostitute in her former life because they mistakenly mixed together the account of Mary of Bethany, which is found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12, with the sinful woman of Luke 7 here, and then with the mention of Mary Magdalene at the beginning of Luke 8. So a short sidebar I think might be helpful, just a little quick detour here. If you compare the account that we're studying in Luke 7 with the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and John, there are some common elements. Right? There's a woman anointing Jesus with perfume as he reclines at table in the home of a man named Simon, with Jesus approving her actions while others react with indignation. But but there are many differences that indicate these are two distinct incidents. Luke's account, you'll notice, comes in the first one-third of his gospel. We're just in chapter 7 of 24, and Jesus is still up in Galilee doing his ministry there. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and John all record something that happened in the final week of Jesus' life, his Passion Week, down in Bethany. So different time, different location. In Luke, it takes place in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and in the other Gospels, it's in the home of Simon the leper. In Luke, Jesus' feet are anointed, and in Matthew and Mark, Jesus' head is anointed to prepare him for burial. In Luke, Simon the Pharisee is the one who's indignant, and he's indignant over the woman's moral status as a sinner. In the other Gospels, Jesus' disciples especially Judas, are the ones who are indignant, and they're indignant over the, what they saw as the wasted cost of the perfume. So I think these are two similar but independent events, sort of like the feeding of the 5,000 and the later feeding of the 4,000 were similar but independent events. Okay, now back from our quick detour to what the Bible actually says about Mary Magdalene. Seven demons had gone out from her. She had been delivered from them. And, and we see later in the Gospels that she gratefully followed Jesus all the way to the cross. When others scattered, Mary Magdalene was there. And she is a key first witness to Jesus' resurrection. Secondly, there's Joanna, whose husband, Chusa, was Herod's household manager. Uh, later on in Luke 24.10, we'll see that Joanna is named as another key early witness to Jesus' empty tomb. And then thirdly, there's Susanna, who is named only this one time in the whole Bible. So, while Jewish rabbis at this time typically refused to teach women at all, Jesus had female followers who traveled with him and supported him 
financially. So that's Luke's point is how these three and many other unnamed women, he says, provided for Jesus and the twelve out of their own means. And they span, it seems, a wide array of social levels, right? You have the formerly demonized woman who would have been an outcast, and you've got this wife of Herod's household manager who, who would have been probably very well-to-do, likely high-class, sacrificial lady supporters who gave to Jesus and his eternal kingdom. And that's where we're going to stop for our summer break before resuming our study of Luke in September. I'm eager to get back at it already. But as we wrap up now, let's consider three possible applications from the main points in our passage. First, there is the debtor who is forgiven more. 500 days wages, some 20 months of income. And this stands for the sinful woman who positions herself behind Jesus, wetting and wiping and kissing and anointing his feet. She shows us that the more forgiveness a person experiences, the more gratitude and love a person expresses. The more forgiveness a person experiences, the more gratitude and love a person expresses. When we recognize the tremendous forgiveness that Jesus lavishes on us, will naturally overflow with radical love and thankfulness to Jesus. And when we are saved by faith in Jesus, we can go in peace. Beautiful lessons from this woman. Secondly, there is the debtor who is forgiven less. 50 days wages or two months of income. This likely stands for Simon the Pharisee, who apparently sees himself as less needy of God's forgiveness than others. He, he may even think that people like the woman are so sinful that they're beyond God's forgiveness, or maybe at least that they're less deserving of God's forgiveness than he is. Simon shows us that God's forgiveness extends way beyond what we think. If I know God's full forgiveness of my sins, shouldn't I welcome, not look down on, other sinners who come to Jesus? If I find myself lacking great love for Jesus as Simon did, I need to take a look at my own life before worrying about what others' problems may be. I must never stop thinking of myself as a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's the gospel, my hopeless condition and God's gracious gift of salvation. The more I grasp how big my debt is, the more I realize how much I've been forgiven, the more I will express thankful love to Jesus. And then third and finally, there's the money lender in Jesus' story, which stands for God or, or Jesus. We're reminded that Jesus is incredibly gracious in forgiving all sorts of sinners, none of whom can pay him back. Any sinner who has saving faith in Jesus, even the worst 500 denarii debtor, has full forgiveness as Jesus declares it. Because Jesus, being God in the flesh, has authority to forgive anyone's sins. So we praise Jesus for his gift of salvation, which enables us to live lives of love and peace. True forgiveness.
Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for the tremendous forgiveness that Jesus lavishes on those who have faith in him. In response, we want to overflow <coughs> with radical love and thankfulness to Jesus, just like the woman that we read about. And we want to welcome all sinners who come to Jesus to be forgiven. We praise you for graciously forgiving all sorts of people who put their saving faith in your Son, Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen.